This exclusive ad-free segment is part of your Politicology Plus subscription. Ah, oh, brilliant. Okay, we can take a breather. Woo. I was talking to a producer. Well, she's a, I guess she's a director because she's in the Directors Guild, friend of mine, and they had already sort of ratified their new agreement. Um, and she was explaining to me how complicated the writer's strike thing is. And she has people on the, like good friends on the picket lines and, and also like these questions about, you know, it's it's almost as if the writers, rec- the writers and the actors. I mean, recognize that there's going to be enormous disruption because of all this technology, and they're they're grasping for whatever they can hold on to for, because this contract's going to be good for three years, and in three years, who knows where, um, you know, how many of them will actually be needed. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, it's a classic labor fight, but on the other hand, it's um, it's sort of a resistance to um, change uh, in in technology, and how are we going to cope with uh, the enormous leverage that AI is now introducing to the process? And it's complicated. I mean, the AI implications. I, I was reading an article in one of the the Hollywood trades that I about this. Um, it's one thing to argue over residuals and what those look like and where they appear. And obviously that's even, that's not much of a thing in the streaming right. streaming era, but like they're talking about using AI to basically create background actors to create extras and like actors just won't exist. Cause AI, I mean, based on un- scans of, yeah, based, and based on scans of real actors. Yeah, right. And there's like, we won't necessarily pay you. We'll pay you once. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll pay you, we'll scan your whole body once, and then we own yeah. your likeness forever. <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> to me. You know, the thing about this whole conversation that's going to be super interesting is if anyone has a chance of maybe unfucking it, it's famous people. So we actually should be really grateful as actors. No, otherwise the rest of us are fucked. Like there won't be writers in five years. Uh, so yeah, that's actually I mean, really good. So like point. Sarah Silverman's our savior. Is that what we're supposed to understand? I, mean, now? Yeah. I do not have time yeah. to follow the whole writers, actors strike thing. But I mean, the AI piece of it is absolutely fascinating because essentially what every owner of data believes is humans don't matter right like we shouldn't matter anymore yeah yeah so yeah that's fucked so there we go so you're you're you are you literally are just data i mean essentially that's what and you they are. really don't even you're, okay so they're gonna scan you and your DNA is a language that can be deciphered. and Right, exactly. Yeah. Like In four years, they'll be able to make good enough avatars that they won't even need to scan the extras to fake clone them oh. onto the thing, right? Like, I, need it'll a, just I need be... a drink. I need a beer. Holy, holy cow. <laughs> it's a little depressing that people like Elon Musk are the ones who are going to decide if humans still matter anymore. Yes. That can only end well. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. <sighs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Well, I welcome Molly. Spaceship. Their cars. <laughs> hey, Molly, 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 Molly has entered has the chat. Entered. Hi, guys. No, I'm sorry. This whole topic really depresses me because uh, the whole like 
everybody thought it was like the workers were the ones that were going to go first when the robots came. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's the creatives, it's writers, it's all us folk who just generate ideas and things. Soon the computers will do that for us. Oh, God. Yeah. So that our listeners, I haven't introduced you properly, but everybody knows who you are. Molly's a writer and researcher of Russian influence and in information warfare. Uh, her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, lots of other publications. And she's an adjunct professor at Georgetown and the lead author of an excellent, excellent newsletter, greatpower.us. So <sighs> we haven't talked, Molly, since uh, a while. I called you after the Prigozhin, yeah, when, the, when it was just breaking. Um, so... We're actually gonna we're gonna release this politicology plus segment on the main feed, so everybody will hear this. Um, but I thought we should probably walk forward from there to present, and um, and then talk about the the more recent news of uh, the bridge, et cetera. So, um, so do you want to bring us as you see the as you see the landscape as it has unfolded since then? And I think just yesterday, Prigozhin popped his head up. He was in Belarus. That was the first time he'd been seen since then. Um, but then, like the big story here is is essentially Russia reneging on the deal to allow grain to exit the country, and we have talked previously at length about how how basically Ukraine feeds Africa, um, to put it really, really simply, um, and how big a deal yeah. this is. Uh, I mean, the Prigozhin thing, I don't think we need to go back to unless there's specific things you want to talk about. I'm still not okay. I mean, I'm just not convinced that the analysis that everyone has been macro tweeting and posting about it is correct in in, in how we're viewing. It's like Russia's fracturing. It's all going to crumble. Like it's been like that always. Um, and I'm just not what what the piece that I'm still sort of stuck on is. So there was this thing, and either it was like it, whether it was staged or real, it like could have been bad and Putin unfucked it by himself and excuse the language on that. But the, uh, the thing where there was a problem and basically Putin solved it on his own is a problem for the rest of us, because it means that he remains the only person in the country with whom you can negotiate things like grain deals or peace deals or whatever. Like there is no alternate channel of influence, uh, yet, um, and in the opportunity moment where someone could have stuck their head up to see if there was another thing, ain't nobody stuck their head up. And that was real interesting to me. So I'm still, you know, I'm, I have no knowledge that is not something you could glean from conversations with smart people or what is online. Uh, but I just, the whole thing is still real weird to me. And I just don't think... I don't think we're necessarily drawing the right lessons out of what we saw yet. Um, but at least the whole like Russia's in a civil war thing has died down. That is not in fact what was happening. Um, but the green deal and, you know, Ron, we've talked about this a lot in the last like 16 yeah. months because we, well, we, sort ta- of stumbled we into talked about it, it in Ukraine as we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it became real to me as you were explaining what, all of the trucks along the side of the road for miles and miles and miles and miles as we were both entering and exiting Ukraine were doing there and why that was such a big deal. And uh, 
So maybe you can sort of reprise the backstory, which will help us understand the present moment. Yeah, well, um, I can't even remember like what we actually discussed on here because my brain is like goo after the last year. But in May last year, Ron and Mike Madrid and I did a little research trip uh, to Ukraine together. Uh, Mike and Ron were recording some things and, and doing actual work. I was really just there for the uh, parallel meetings. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, the just you always learn a lot just from stopping to actually pay attention to what is happening. And as Ron described, um, we drove across the border uh, to Lviv both times and then took the train from Lviv to Kiev. Um, and, you know, just watching... It, the situation has improved mildly at the borders, but in those first months uh, after the war started, or the newest phase of the war started... Um, trying to get goods in and out of Ukraine became completely bananas. And uh, especially since all the shipping, which Ukraine is heavily dependent on um, because it is a Black Sea nation, um, uh, was disrupted and everybody was trying to move things over land. There were kilometers long, like absolutely insane lines of trucks trying to cross the borders um, with uh, a lot of agricultural products was what the labels on the trucks were. Um, and uh, people were waiting in line for days uh, to cross the border, and that was obviously increasing the price of transiting goods to the point where it made no sense to move them because it cost so much to move the wheat, it was worth more than the price of the wheat. So, And then just as we were moving into the country, because uh, this was early May, so everything was in blossom, it's prime planting and agricultural season, uh, just watching, even in the course of the war, every field was plowed and it was like old people in the fields working uh, to get everything ready for planting um, and sort of thinking through the history of all that with the Holodomor and the Soviet use of starvation to attempt to subjugate Ukrainians um, and knowing how that cultural awareness, which they weren't allowed to talk about or have any historical knowledge of until the 90s, really, um, but understanding how what Russia is doing now to prevent Ukraine from exporting any of its agricultural products, uh, they're shelling farmland, they're blowing up grain storage, um, they're trying to disrupt uh, sort of production and uh, export of agricultural goods, as well as just destroying agricultural goods, like how all of that sort of pulls at the Ukrainian psyche and why the green deal, but the agricultural piece in general has remained this like really critical aspect that Ukraine is trying to engage its international partners on because of this historical aspect of the importance of being able to continue to produce food um, during a time of war, during a time of Russian uh, oppression, essentially. Um, and then understanding what starvation is and then why it is important for them to continue to try to export food because Ukraine is a, a, a supplier of 40 to 50% of the wheat that goes to the world food program. Um, so being able to get their goods to where they need to go is like an important thing for Ukrainians. Um, and it's been so frustrating to watch the flip side of that, which is like somehow all of us friends of Ukraine have really had no strategy on the global South during this whole period. And, uh, Russia has kicked butt on engagement and messaging to the global south. Not that they weren't primed for these messages already, but um, 
Africa, Latin America, very solid in the war is not our business category. Um, a lot of them have believed the Russian messaging that it is Ukraine's fault that there is no grain getting to them, that the prices are so high, that people are feeling a lot of food insecurity um, and pressure. Um, and frankly, not enough of the countries who are recipients of uh, these grain deals um, and need the grain that is coming out of Ukraine. Uh, not enough of them have been engaged in trying to solve this problem either. Um, Egypt, we're looking at you. But um, it's really interesting. Just like it's like this one little snapshot of places that were really missing opportunities and we keep telling ourselves like we're winning the information war, like Russia's losing the war, like all these things are bad. Why doesn't the Kremlin give up? But there's actually a lot of categories where they've made, I think, pretty significant uh, and interesting sort of strategic outreach. I wouldn't necessarily say gains, but there's been a lot of interesting things. And I think just the last couple weeks uh, related to the Progosian thing, you know, one of the big concerns when Wagner kind of evaporated in two weeks or whether it still has or not, no one is really sure. But like Wagner is a major security provider. Well, and I'm air quoting Wagner there. Russia is a major security provider using its Wagner brand um, in five to six African nations. And if those guys disappeared tomorrow, it would be like a massive security crisis a lot of, uh, along a lot of the Sahel. And like, um, it was interesting in the weeks after some of the really good, foreign journalists who have been engaged in these places trying to document what Wagner has been doing and how they have assumed these really interesting security positions that are self-funding for the most part. They have like extractive relationships and they secure the extractive industries and they help these people stay in power. And then they like either get a piece of or steal a lot of the goods in Sudan. They're just taking like planes full of actual gold out of the country to fund the war. Um, but some journalists were going and asking these countries where they have these security partnerships, like, Sue, are you worried about this? Like, what do you think is going to happen? And the answer from the dudes at the top who had made the deals with the Wagner guys was essentially, you know, it's a I think the actual quote from one was like, send us a Beethoven, send us a Mozart. We don't care. We'll take whatever the next version of the Russian thing is. So just like the carefree, like they understood this was a deal with Russia. It wasn't Wagner. And, uh, like, this is the deal that they've made because it is useful for them. I think it's a window for us that we don't, like, we don't actually understand the function Wagner is filling for a lot of places, um, which some of our better African partners have tried to point out to us when this administration tried to say, like, you guys should kick out Wagner and we're not going to give you anything to do it. Um, so I think that piece was interesting on, like, an Africa snapshot, that there's actually a lot of things that Russia still does in Africa to solve problems that we are totally disengaged in. Um, and yes, those things are very transactional and very cynical most of the time. Um, yes, there are still some of those Soviet ideological ties that are pulled on, but mostly this is just dudes in power keeping other dudes in power so they can all profit together. Um, and then the other second thing I would just highlight... Uh, quickly, I say, but obviously not quickly enough. Uh, the EU had its big summit with Latin America this past, I think it was this past week, in the last 10 days. And after it was after the NATO summit. And um, uh, there was this kerfuffle where they could not agree upon the language in the stupid communique, which is utterly meaningless, but yet they could not come to an agreement about what they were saying in this like 20 point thing or whatever. 
the biggest disagreement was about Ukraine, which the Latin countries were like, we don't even want to mention this. Not our fault. Not our thing. We don't want to talk about it. Like that's your war. European war is not our problem. And um, there was a lot of pressure about it. Uh, ultimately, they just sort of caved and left it out. Um, but then there was another point in the thing that was about the Falklands and like the EU, because the UK no longer there to negotiate its interests. Uh the EU just sort of caved on this point. And so these two things together where the Latin countries were like, we're not going to mention things that aren't Latin. And then they're like, oh, but we're going to talk about the Falcons. Um, it was uh, an interesting, another interesting moment where it's just like, we keep saying things like the war in Ukraine is a global war. It's an important determining factor of what comes next for global democracy, blah, 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 blah. But we do not have a global plan for this. And um, while there are small initiatives, certainly on specific things, including some things like food security and uh, grain deals and outreach, um, we still don't have a holistic vision of how we are engaging people around this issue relating to China and Russia. Um, and it is very apparent that those things are absent. And I think the Biden administration's real effort to minimize how much they are talking about Ukraine. They do not believe it is a winning strategy for them to talk about it, regardless if it is good or bad in Ukraine. Um, the attempts to minimize this are just such a huge missed opportunity on our policy side. Um, when there are good, smart people in the administration who are trying to make their way in some of these avenues. So the Green Deal is like this massively important thing which russia now has wrapped its fingers back around the throat of so that ukraine will not be able to ship grain through the black sea again unless uh someone decides to secure the shipping lane and insure the ships so essentially either the americans or the brits would have to provide insurance for the transit uh, and probably the turks unless you know we want to show up or something uh, would need to provide security for the shipping lane to keep it open. Um, and the Russians have just said, no, no, you know, we're not, you know, we're going to bomb things if we think that they're weapons in a grain boat going to Odessa, you know, and today they yeah. blew up a huge grain storage facility in the Odessa port. And yesterday they hit one in Mikolaev to, to prove that point of like, we will just continue to make people starve if we think that will be advantageous to us in this phase of the war, because it's not going well for them. And so that's what they're going to do now. And so just to put a fine point on it, the UN is warning that as many as 47 million people uh, could be pushed into acute food insecurity because of this. So um, this is not a, not a small deal. Um, uh, Okay, before we um, let you go, Frank or Andy, do you have any questions for Molly while we have her? I mean, one question, Molly, that I have, forgive me for going back to Prigozhin, but, um, you know, I mean, that, you know, I hear that name and I think of, I mean, he was the chef, right? The, yeah, the chef guy. And then he also helped run, oversee, fund the internet research agency right so how does the 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 sort of potential blow up or certainly the uh blow to wagner and then Prigozhin's standing in russia how does that affect all of this sort of disinformation wars 
I, th- I know I know the IRA isn't actually the IRA anymore. It's evolved to some new thing, right? Renamed Who it. knows? But like, I always sort of saw him as connected with that. Um, and now, he, you know, he's sort of part, pop, possibly out of the picture. What, what do you see going on there? exactly the right point slash question slash area of things where I think there is uh, a lot more to dig into and look at. I think for what Progosian was sort of the brand name for was all of these hybrid warfare things or whatever term you want to put on them below threshold tactics, you know, influence operations. Like, I don't care what the terminology is, but, um, you know, he became sort of the brand of doing this stuff. Yes. Under, I mean, basically under the tutelage of Russian military intelligence um, and certainly connected to Russian intelligence operations, but he was kind of a new capability that was developed to do these things. So it included uh, the information operations, which were super important, but that whole, like the internet research agency was launched around the same time Wagner was um, in this sort of, we just annexed Crimea and nobody did anything about it. What do we do now framework? Um, And so I think what it represents is there's a whole lane of hybrid capabilities that Russia has been investing in heavily that yes, it's crappy army is still crappy, and every day we can laugh at how crappy it is, but um, they're still highly effective and capable in this other domain of things. I mean, they're still doing stuff against all of us during the war. They're still doing um, economic warfare and other things against the Ukrainians in the context of the war. You know, the okay, their army sucks, but their occupation is quite efficient still. Um, and so this, there, there's these whole, these areas of things where I still think we're minimizing, uh, what Russia is still capable of doing with limited resources and finances in the context of this absurd war that they are currently investing in. Um, and Prigozhin was really the face of that. And I think he kind of, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm still not sure like what the right way to talk about it is because I'm still not sure what we're really looking at, but he was a new institution, essentially. Like there's the institutional pie at the Kremlin and there's the guys who sit at the table who represent their institutions um, and the way that they achieve those positions. So the guy who's the head of the FSB, the guy who's the head of the MOD, the guy who's the head of the army, the guy who's from the other Intel thing, the guy who's from this thing. Every one of those guys emerges from a a very nasty cutthroat but specific process in their own institution to be the king of the institution, to have the access to the Kremlin, to represent their interests in the only place that matters, which is in front of Putin. Um, And Prigozhin sort of just, you know, he was his own. He's like, I'm here, guys. What you going to do about it? And I don't think anybody ever really loved that that much. Uh, Nobody likes having to cut a small pie into more pieces when there's new people. Um, and so I think the transition from there was one guy and sort of the face brand was important to now there's these capabilities and they exist and are they going to give them back to one guy or are they going to try to figure out a different way to manage those capabilities is a really good question. And it's exactly the thing I think a lot of our, uh, intelligency people are trying to look at right now and gain better visibility on, um, because I think the, like, dudes moving into Belarus to live in a tent is not the important piece of the things that are happening right now. And it's the kind of what's happening to the other capabilities. And I mean, the Africa piece includes this like 
massive money laundering structure, right? Like, who has control of that now? Because controlling the money that is outside of Russia is one of the most important things for the Kremlin. Um, so all that money that is being, all the revenue that was generated by Wagner, um, uh, yes, the Kremlin funded their operations and provided them with equipment, but Wagner made a lot of money stealing things and, you know, cutting deals with creeps. So who's managing that? What does that look like now? Who has control of the very significant, like, okay, there was this turnover of equipment back in Russia, but all that shit in Africa is still sitting in Africa. Like, who has control of all that? Um, there's been some good, uh, you know, there's a couple of, of the high-ranking dudes who have been sort of lily-padding around flights in Africa to try to make sure these relationships are secure, and it doesn't seem like any of them have been upset. But this the whole web of things like the transition of that to something else is really an interesting question. And I think the same process is happening with the official institution side where some generals are disappearing and some other guys are probably going on vacation. Um, but I think there is a consolidation or at least a contempt, uh, an attempted consolidation of uh, individual loyalty control. Um, I don't know what the right way to quite paraphrase it is yet um but there is an attempt to uh shave off some of the the chaff i guess if we're sticking with our grain analogy and uh uh and and see like who's actually still uh a central player in this in this landscape and i don't i just don't think we have enough answers to that yet <laughs> but it's the right question which is who has control of all these things um because they're all still operating and there's been absolutely no pause yeah. in, uh, in the non-Ukrainian piece of the Wagner operations. I don't know if that was a, a specific Molly? enough answer. Sorry. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> brilliant and, and, and enlightening. Thank you. As Americans, we always think that like we matter the most and everything revolves around us. To what extent? You mean it doesn't? Well, so <laughs> let me ask this question. Like, if we run into a political problem in the next two to three years where funding is no longer coming from the U.S. for Ukraine weapons, whatever they need, how significant of a problem is that for the Ukrainians? I mean, mm. if, if we stop funding the Ukrainian stuff. And if we just don't order our dudes to make weapons, because if we're not providing the funding, not one of those guys is going to make a single fucking shell. Right. Uh, that, I mean, that's, that is now our defense contractors. Oh, do we have the prepaid order here? If not, I, Oh, my machines just don't work. <laughs> um, so, uh, if we stop very specifically giving instructions to our defense industry to make munitions, uh, and other things. And if we stop funding those things, and if anybody believes there's going to be disruption to that funding, that will also slow down production. Um, uh, it's fucked. Like, there's just, there's no way around it. Some of the, I mean, some of it can be made up by European um, capacity uh, on, in terms of, like, manufacturing. Um, and, but even if they were to magically conjure the same amount of money, if we are not engaged and we are not providing munitions, I mean, the European capacity to make stuff is, like, one third at max capability. Is it kind of weird that we ran out of 
It's super weird. I think um, a couple of th- like how do we have how do we spend I don't know eight hundred billion dollars a year on because not we don't bullets? fight land wars and would never have thought of fighting a land war and it's completely bananas. I mean, there's the plans right, which is why we have these controversial cluster munitions that we are not a part of the convention of that we are providing to Ukraine to throw at the Russians. Uh, and we kept those because we knew if we ever had to fight Russia in a tank battle, we were going to need exactly these things to do what we're doing now, which is like clear them out of spaces they are holding. Um, so there's like pieces of our stockpile that we have specifically for this notion that someday we may need to fight this war with Russia that we've thought about for 70 years. Um but nobody ever really seriously thought, like, we would never fight a war without air superiority. It's completely insane. Like, no way would we shoot 60,000 shells a day. Like, pfft, no fucking way. So I think we just yeah. never conceptualized that anybody would actually have to fight this way uh, again. Nor did we think the Ukrainians would actually fight this way with these options in front of them. Uh, nor can we now tell them, even though we try, like, Guys, stop, shoot, stop shooting Because it's so such much. a brutal like, grind. Stop shooting so much. There's right. no alternative. We're not giving them any alternative but shooting this much. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a totally kookadoo way to do this war. And we would never fight with this much artillery. We would have things being shot from the sky. We would have drones engaged. We would have planes. Uh, there would be much less close lines of contact. So, so Molly... When do we like when I watch the Biden administration's um, the, the way they have executed yep. this war, when are they going to send the yeah. air support? Right. Like, isn't that day like aren't we just getting to that point? It's just a function of when or is that really the red line that they're just not crossing ever? I think they're still very hemmed in by their don't provoke the bear framing of everything. Um, And the fear of, oh God, what would they do with this is still more than the potential of changing what the battlefield looks like of giving them the thing. And there's still delay. Like, I think they finally, uh, and like in in this classic, like the Obama people did exactly the same thing, thing where they go through the binders so many times and delay the painful decision-making so many fucking times that by the time they do it, they get no credit for it because it's taken so long and everybody's had to publicly shame them. But so after the NATO summit is over, they're finally like, okay, okay, we'll stop being the ones holding up the training for the F-16s. Like you may now use the simulators to train the pilots um, so that they can maybe transfer the planes that won't come from us, that will come from other countries uh, by next year. That's going to do a lot. And in the meantime, they're totally digging in on this messaging of like, see, they're fighting a war with cluster munitions. Planes wouldn't do anything anyway. And it's like, um, no. (laughs) We've been saying that for a while. When you're only giving them the little toys, obviously it looks like the planes wouldn't do anything, but actually the planes would do a lot. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just the landscape is so bleak. I don't know if anybody saw that crazy ass video. I think Trump posted. I keep hoping it's totally fake, but I think it's an actual policy statement he posted that was very much why should we fight this stupid war in Ukraine? Blah 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 blah. 
Yeah, of but course. he publicly contradicts himself constantly with like the "I would win in five minutes yeah. by nuking so, Russia," and you're like, "No, you wouldn't. <laughs> so <who knows? laughs> you would not yeah. do that." Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just I wish there was a little more innovation or leadership from the American side instead of now very publicly being the naysayers on Ukraine NATO membership on increasing supplies of arms and munitions on ordering the shit here. Like just give them the freaking ATACMs. You think they're not going to do anything fine. Give them like 50 and just see what they do. And if it helps, it helps. And if not, you can be like, see, we told you so, you know, it's just, it's really disappointing. It's really disappointing. And the counteroffensive is, yeah, no, the counteroffensive is slow and, uh, I mean, not slow because the Ukrainians are bad. It's just like their choices, doing it the way that they're doing, which is a lot of demining, um, or dying a lot. And they've decided to not die a lot right now, but to demine. And everybody's like, see, we told you you're too slow. Like, we shouldn't give you any more weapons.